0: Well, we've just been uh, in a series, a preaching series called Being Good News to Those Who Need It. And now we move into Advent. So we have these four Sundays of Advent. And what we wanna try to do uh, sermonically in these four Sundays of Advent is craft messages that link Advent series to that series we just finished because we're talking about some of the specifics of the good news that people need in today the idea that, uh, man, people need hope. You heard a story about some students who had none and then got some and then came up with an idea to spread that hope and they're giving hope, they're making an investment. People that have no hope now in their lives are finding hope through somebody that cares about them And they're thinking about a future now that could be different than the one they were condemned to before because hope givers gave hope and people caught that idea of hope and then they went and shared hope and now they have a vision for more and more hope, a different future for people than they might otherwise have had. The hope comes because, as you see on the board, of this idea that we're convinced that God is with us And Christ is in us. But I want to add to that today. Because God is with us and Christ is in us, it means that the future is for us. God is with us and Christ is in us. We have hope. There's hope for a different future. And that's a message, an Advent message you need to take with you today. The future is for us. That's sort of another way to say what Scripture has said. If God is for us, then who can stand against us? If God is for us, then what can stop us when we're living out a life that's according to the example of Jesus? God is with us, Christ is in us, which means the future is for us. We have hope. But we don't just have any hope. This message, the hope that we need, implies that there's another kind of hope, a hope that we don't need, God gives us the hope we really need. Advent hope is the hope we really need. It's the kind of hope that doesn't disappoint. We're not talking about what I want to call a pipe dream hope, a hope that we don't need, a hope without conviction, a hope without assurance at any level. It's a hope that's tied almost exclusively to chance. You know what I'm talking about. It's the kind that's represented in this picture. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope it happens but it's sort of just thrown out there as some sort of uh, an unguaranteed dream. It's the kind of hope you would experience if you had the task of, show this next slide, of driving this truck across this bridge. Now, <coughs> you may have seen, this may be common in Africa, I don't know, that might be a great bridge for you. But imagine yourself, you go to the driver of that truck, and you say, Uh, can you you actually navigate this bridge? Things won't go that well if you go off the rails, so to speak. So can you do this? Imagine the driver saying, well, I, I hope so. Go ahead and get in and come on with me. How many of you are getting in? I'm not getting in. I'd rather go down one side of the ravine and walk up the other. And that's the pipe dream hope we're talking about. Things are left to chance. It's the kind of hope that Paul references when he writes to Timothy, (coughs) excuse me, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, that's this pipe dream hope, which is so uncertain but instead, he says, put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. But don't put your hope in things that are uncertain. Don't invest your hope in things that are just left up to chance. Put your hope in God. This is the kind of hope we don't need any more of. And it's certainly not what we're talking about when we light an Advent candle and speak of Emmanuel coming and the hope that we need and the Advent hope of scripture. It's not this kind of hope. Man, I sure hope everything works out where it's all just left up to chance. You know, that kind of hope is a soup made from some of these kinds of things. Here's what's in the recipe for that pipe dream hope. Maybe you can identify with some of these and think, ah, I need to I need to not put that in the mix anymore. You'll hear things like this associated with it. The, the idea of of wishing upon the stars or life strategies based upon hot tips and lottery tickets. What kind of a plan is that for retirement and financial security? Or the idea of blind luck or trusting fate and flipping coins and hoping everything, hoping everything comes out okay. It's in the, in the vein of this, that if it's supposed to happen, it will happen. That kind of a philosophy. Well, que sera, sera. If it's supposed to happen, it will happen. It's all left up to chance, crossing your fingers and hoping you've guessed right. That's not the hope we're talking about, and that's not the hope we need. It's pipe dream hope, certainly not the kind announced with the coming of Christ. But we're talking about a different kind of hope when we talk about Advent hope, when we light a hope candle, when we talk about the hope associated with the Christian Faith and the hope associated with the ancient longings of those who have followed Christ. And it's a hope we definitely do need. Here's a recipe for that kind of hope. You take conviction and you season it with caution, humility. You add expectation and anticipation, desire and longing, and you link that. This is important. Without this, it doesn't taste like hope, the kind of hope we're talking about at all. You link all of that with a biblical promise or teaching. So our hope is linked to a biblical promise. This hope we're talking about at Advent time isn't Christian hope. It isn't biblical hope if it's separated from a a promise that we hope to see fulfilled. Now, you also didn't see me use the word certainty. Or guarantee. When we talk about caution or humility, we're protecting the whole idea of a hope. A hope. If you if you instead think of conviction, I'm absolutely convinced that this promise is going to come true, and I'm basing my life on that sort of convinced assumption. It's a convictioned, a principled assumption. But not a certainty, it's a hope. But it's not a hope without conviction. Here, let me give you this definition. What we'll, I'll do now is I'm going to say, here's what we're talking about. when We talk about Advent hope, Christian hope. And then we'll go back and look at the pieces. Advent hope is three things. patiently waiting for the fulfillment of a promise made by someone you can trust to keep it. It's patiently waiting, this is hope, for the fulfillment of a promise made by somebody you're convinced will keep it and can keep it, has the power to keep it. Patiently waiting is the first component of that. If you look at texts, for instance, like in Romans 8, are Psalm 130. We'll look at both of those. I'm not trying to exegete these texts. I'm not attempting to do justice to the context of these texts. I'm pulling these things out of their context and asking you to trust me that that I'm being reasonable with them. But the reason I bring them here is to show you word usage and sort of a word study on hope and a contextual study uh, on hope. So we don't want to imply accidentally that this is the way you should treat scripture. Go to it, pull your favorite verse out, read it without context. Just do the opposite of that when you're studying scripture. Uh, but but I want to use these to give you examples of how hope uh, is introduced in scripture. So this idea of waiting patiently. For instance, if you look at Romans 8 and Psalm 130, and you could look at all sorts of different examples. There are so many examples of this we couldn't take time to show you all of them. But here's what you'll see, and I'm going to read them, and then I want you to look for this as I read them. The idea of patiently waiting or long-suffering waiting when you're looking forward for something and the idea of hope are so commingled in these texts that they're almost exchanged easily and freely as though they're equals. In fact, you see the word uh, that would be clearly translated patiently waiting uh, in Hebrew, and then a Greek translation in the Septuagint, which is the, Bible, the Hebrew Bible that uh, was translated into Greek so that it could be accessible to Jews who had been dispersed all over the world and no longer could speak or read Hebrew, but they could sure read Greek. And so the, the smart people they said, let's translate our Holy Scriptures into Greek so that everybody can have access to them because they can't read Hebrew anymore. And so, But that gives us great ways to study how at least the translators into the Greek understood the Hebrew they were reading. Do you see how that makes sense? I read this word, but in Greek it turns out to be this word. It gives you sort of a commentary, some insight into what they were thinking that that really meant when they translated into Greek. And you'll see a Hebrew word that clearly means patiently reading Waiting, and you'll see it that same verse translated with the word hope. You'll see them back and forth uh, exchanged all, all the time because our hope is about long suffering, convictioned waiting, anticipation, looking. Romans 8 We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a promise that they're basing this waiting on, this patience on. It hasn't happened yet. It's a hope, and they're waiting patiently for this this promise that they hope to see come to fruition. For in this what hope, we are saved. We are rescued. But hope that is seen isn't really hope. The minute it's proven and and absolutely certain, it's no longer a hope. It's just moved out of that category. It's a proof then, right? (coughs) Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? I hope someday to have a little pinky finger. Well, that's stupid. I have a pinky finger. I hope someday to have my class ring from high school still on my finger. There it is. It's not a hope. It's a reality. Who hopes for what they already have? We wait for it patiently. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So you have these concepts forever wed. What is Christian hope? It's waiting patiently. But Psalm 130 is even more fun because here you see, uh, I mean, such a freedom of exchanging the words. It's it's just really obvious. Sometimes it's translated one way and sometimes another way, as though they're the same thing, as though they're synonymous terms. Wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in His word I put my hope or my waiting. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the morning. More than a watchman waits of, uh, More than a watchman waits for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For the Lord is is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. It's all futuristic language, though. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. But you have these words almost transposed, almost just exchanged as though they were the same words. Hope definitely means waiting patiently. But it's waiting patiently, not just for the next bridge crossing. It's waiting patiently for the fulfillment of a promise. The hope we're talking about is connected to a promise. That's what we're looking toward and hoping for. You have all that redemption language, all that things are going to be better for us. One day, things that are wrong are going to be made right. One day, all of the things that cause you to lose sleep at night because they're just wrong, are going to be corrected. One day we will know Jesus cheek to cheek, face to face. We'll know what his voice sounds like. One day there'll be no more disappointment on earth and humanity will be what humanity was always intended to be. And I don't know all the details of what will one day be. But things will not always be as they presently are. I can guarantee you that Jesus promised that. And I hope for that. I long for that. I have bet my life on that, on that promise. And so have most of you. That's hope. Are you certain that that's going to happen? I'm convinced. I'm convinced. And I hope that that promise will be kept. Christian hope. Waiting patiently for the fulfillment of a promise Here's an example of how the apostles and Jesus practiced this or showed this. The fulfillment of a promise. Isaiah is full of prophecies that we now know because we get to interpret Isaiah through the lenses of the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus. We might not have understood if we didn't have the New Testament. Isaiah's prophecy comes and we might assign it to this, to Israel or to some Historical event, but now Jesus comes. He teaches. The apostles are here. We have the New Testament and Scripture, and it actually tells us here's what Isaiah's prophecy was about. And we have Jesus aligning himself with some of the prophecies in Isaiah. You have Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 52, and now we you'll you'll see those texts read as we move through Advent and into Christ, into Christmas time. Look at how this works. Let me read Isaiah 42, and then I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 12, where Matthew probably hears Jesus say this and then records it, and it's an interpretation of Isaiah, but with a very interesting twist on it. So Matthew four, or Isaiah 42 says this. Remember, we're talking about waiting patiently for the fulfillment of a promise. The fulfillment of a promise is what we're digging into now. Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, this is Isaiah the prophet, I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. For fun, I would say, hey, by the way, go and read some commentators and do some research on what they think the Jewish folks who heard that promise or that prophecy might have thought Isaiah was talking about. That'd be a fun study. Matthew makes it clear what that prophecy was about. Here's Matthew from Matthew chapter 12, speaking of Jesus, and I'm sure quoting Jesus. Stuff happens, and again, I'm out of context, but that's not the point. Aware of this, Jesus withdraws from the place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. And he warned them not to tell others about him. Then this, all that Jesus did that we haven't referenced here, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Well, oh, now we have the New Testament saying, here's what that prophecy was about. And here's what I, what Matthew, how Matthew quotes Isaiah. It's a little different. Here's my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nation. So we're talking about the same prophecy. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he has brought justice through victory. And then this. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. That's not in the original Isaiah prophecy. That is obviously a commentary on what the original Isaiah prophecy is talking about, an inspired commentary. Probably Matthew heard Jesus quote the Isaiah prophecy and make that that veiled claim about himself. The point is that according to Matthew, probably having heard it from Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made in Isaiah 42 49 52 all of those messianic promises Matthew was saying that messiah that they were talking about it's it's Jesus it's this promise now being fulfilled he was the one promised and his promise has to do with the hope that he brings you'll see references to Isaiah in Isaiah to the messiah being the light to the Gentiles, the light to the non-Jewish world, the light to the nations, literally the light to the ethnicities. He's talking about everybody that's not Jewish that needs to be included in the, in the, in the promise, the Abrahamic promise. But you have, you have now Jesus quoting himself, knowing that he's referenced as the light, saying, and he's the hope. Matthew uses the word hope. All of that co-mingled again reminding us that hope is waiting patiently for the fulfillment of a promise that we've bought into. But finally, it's not just any promise. It's a promise that we're convinced is made by someone we can trust to keep it. And in the trust to keep it, it's a promise made by somebody that we believe has the power to keep it and has a history that proves that he keeps his promises. Let's move over to uh, the book of Hebrews. Look at how serious God is about making this point. I'm going to read more than you're going to see up on the screen. You're going to see, I think, beginning at verse 13, but to give a little more context and warm us up to this, let me start reading at verse 9, Then you can jump on whenever my words parallel, but this is a promise made by someone who has the power to keep it, or at least we're convinced he has a, a history of keeping his word, And he has the power to keep his word. Our hope is tied to a promised future, a promise made by God himself. Hebrews 6 is saying that. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, a better future, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And may I just stop for a second here and claim those words. They're, they're not aimed necessarily at our guest today, but may I remind Jeff and Carolyn of that, by the way. He will not forget. The nights weeping with students and the days reminding moms that their prayers will be heard, he will not forget. He looks forward to -to face-to-face thanking you. Just in case you were wondering. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. So you have this looking forward again here. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience, there's that word again, inherit, what has been promised, all hope language and futuristic language. But that's, that's only as good as the person who makes the promise, right? If I come up and say, "I am, come out to lunch with me, I'm going to write you a check for a million dollars. Well, you might believe that I write the check, but I doubt very much you believe that I have the power to keep it, that promise. And when you cash it, it's going to be worth anything. And by the way, you'd be right, it won't be. The promise is no good. It's only good based on Your understanding of the one who made it and his or her power to keep it. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham and he promised Abraham, man, you stick with me, keep processing, walk down the trail with me, walk toward me. I'm going to make you a nation. You're not going to be able to count your your descendants. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, do you hear a theme here? Abraham received what was promised. There you have God having a history of keeping his promises and making their promise based on his own history and based on his power. People swear by someone greater than themselves, going on in verse 16. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. So, this is sort of like people have cosigners for their promises. I swear by X, so that's a cosigner for my promise. If you don't think I've got the power to keep it, my cosigner certainly does. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very, very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. He based the oath on himself. He did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Hope language, futuristic language again, based on God who made a promise based on himself. And we have this hope, hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever, the order of Melchizedek. So we're talking about a hope that means waiting patiently for the fulfillment of a promise, even a global promise, made by someone you trust to keep it, You're convinced can keep it. So the early text there speaks of the futility of basing life on promises that end up not being good. They end up working out to be a curse, actually. And then it goes on to talk about the hope in a proven, authoritative God, who is, by the way, the ultimate decision maker. We are convinced of that as followers of Christ, convinced. We haven't scientifically proven anything. But we're convinced that it's true based on our faith, our confidence in things that we haven't seen yet. Because we're convinced of it, when we engage with people who are unconvinced, we do so with a level of humility and mutual respect. But we're convinced. That's why this promise gives us hope. That's the hope the candle represents a yielded conviction that something will indeed come to pass, that God is with us, that Christ is in us, and therefore the future is for us and for all of humanity. This hope is the basket into which we have placed all of our eggs with full confidence that they won't be crushed. That's our hope. The hope of the nations is Jesus. Theologian John Piper puts it this way, biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is a desire for and a confident expectation of something good in the future. It's not the pipe dream hope we don't need, It's the good news, biblically pure Advent hope we do need.